Good morning. Welcome to In Town. Glad that you're here with us this morning. No, my name is David Fisk. I'm one of the pastors here and glad to be with you here this morning. We are going through a series called Managing Grief. And as we talk about grief, I always want us to have uh, the right definition. Like, let's get on the same page of what we're talking about. So when I talk about grief, I want to talk about overwhelming sorrow from loss. Okay? Overwhelming sorrow from loss. And there is a whole spectrum of this that we experience. All of us in this room have experienced grief on different levels for different things, right? Like, we've experienced it with death, but we also experience it like if we lose a physical ability or a mental ability or one of your best friends moves away or a dating relationship doesn't work or you don't make the team. Like, we've all experienced it on different levels. And the results usually are that we get angry or we get incredibly sad. Maybe we get very cynical about it. And grief really does turn our life upside down right? It really does alter the trajectory that you're on. And so what I want your takeaway to be, the biggest one, number one, I want you to have lots of takeaways, but the number one is how we're not solving grief, we're tending to grief, tending to grief through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so, of course, everyone's like, David, why didn't you name it tending to grief? And I was like, yeah, that one's on me. My bad. <laughs> so tending to grief is what we're, what we're talking about today. And so you think about the goal of grief is to integrate. It's to integrate the loss into your life and, and continue to move forward. And it's something we learn to live alongside of. And this morning, we're going to look at John 11. Now, um, spoiler, Lazarus is a character in John 11, and he's going to die. So, sorry, I just spoiled it for you, but uh, he's Mary and Martha's brother. He's friends with Jesus, like they're friends. And he's been dead for three days. Okay, you're going to hear that from Becky. And the reason that that's important is because in their culture, they used to think that the soul hovered around the dead body for about three days, looking for an opportunity to go back in and come back alive. So this was they're looking for. So four days means, whoop, soul's gone. He's really dead, very dead. So Becky's going to come and read for us parts of John 11. And I want you to pay attention to Jesus' emotions, okay? As she reads, listen for Jesus' emotions in our passages. All right. Our reading this morning is from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 21 and 30 through 44. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. 
and picking up in verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise up quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you and we ask that you would be here amongst us, that you would work in all of our hearts. Would you use my words to bring blessing to everyone here, to all of us? Encourage us, challenge us, and bring glory to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope is not a strategy. Hope, all by itself, is not a strategy. That's what they used to tell us in RUF for fundraising all the time. Like, what's your plan? Well, I hope people send money in, you know? And they were always like, hope's not a strategy. Hope is a word that you put into something, right? Like, hope has an object that you have to put your hope into, whether it's a person or plan or an event. Hope is something that has to have something to, that, that it's in. And <clears throat> I think as we look at hope this morning, think about, well, when we're struggling to have hope, what do we do? And I was talking with somebody this week, and we said, sometimes it's hard to hope because you pray, and you're like, God, will you please do this? And then he answers your prayer, but he does this. And you're like, oh, man, you answered my prayer, but dang it, not in the way that I asked. Like, not in, <sighs> like, you're just frustrated. And I thought about, like, okay, well, what are the, what are the kind of the ways that we're um, hopeless, right? Or maybe we put our hope in the wrong thing, right? We put it in ourselves. We put it in our own strength. I will take care of this. I can do this. 
all right? I got it. I don't need God for this. I'm going to do it. Or we put hope into just busyness and distraction. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't really have a plan. I just am going to hope and keep on wishing and having that wishful thinking. Or we might do it through numbing, right? Like, I'm just going to watch 27 episodes of Dairy Girls tonight and not think about anything, right? Like, no, that's not good either. Shopping, eating, like, oh, man, this whole apple pie, I'm not going to think about anything bad, right? Like, that's, it doesn't work. It leaves us hopeless because it's empty and not able to be the thing that you put your hope into. And what I want us to look at today is how we don't move on from grief, we move with grief, and that hope goes with us. And we're going to see what we put our hope in as Christians. Last week, we talked about Job, and one of the things we said about Job was that his friends had terrible wisdom, like they were terrible comforters. They truncated down all of kind of God's wisdom into this idea that, Job, you're suffering because you've sinned, and you just need to apologize, and then everything will be fine. And we said, that is a bad answer. That is not true. A good answer is to look at the Christian story. We talked about that last week, just a little bit. So I want to talk about it a little bit more this week. So you think about the Christian story, right? Genesis 1 and 2, where God comes and he creates all of creation, creates man and woman, gives them a task. Everything's perfect, right? Everything is good. Everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And it's full of life and fruitfulness and goodness. But then you know what, you know what happens next. Humanity sins, and they rebel against God. And as they sin and rebel, brokenness and pain and death enter the world. Now think about that for a second. Death doesn't enter until Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 and 2, there is no death. Death hasn't been introduced in the story yet. Now, in 2005, I did youth ministry as an interim youth director at my home church. It will be the last year that I ever do youth ministry. <laughs> Love youth ministers. We need Steve. <laughs> Just not me. I'm like, send my kids to you. Um, and Maggie, too. We need Maggie for my daughters, yeah. Uh, so I did youth ministry, and um, it was a hard year. It was a hard year because we lost a student. And Jimmy Egan was the senior pastor. And as he was doing the eulogy, as he was doing the service, he said something that has stuck out, not just to me, but like my family talks about it, my parents talk about it still to this day, and that was like 17 years ago. But he talked about how he said, we were not created for death. Think about that. We were not created for death. Genesis 1 and 2. We were created, and everything was good and right, and the way that it was supposed to be. But then death came in later. 
And so you think about, well, I was designed to be in this world, but now because of death and sin and corruption and evil, we live in this world. And how those two are different, how we were not created to uh, experience death, but not also, also not grief. Grief was not supposed to be on the scene, right? It's not the way that it's supposed to be. That's not what we are created for. And so when we have to experience it, it doesn't always make sense in our heads. We don't always understand. That's why I, I want to take the pressure off of you. Like, that's why you don't solve someone's grief. That's why you tend to it. That's why you tend to it. Okay? So we weren't de- designed for creation. Well, we see this in, in Jesus' relationship with Lazarus. They were friends. He cared about them, uh, uh, him. And Jesus, remember, Jesus was at creation, right? Like, he was there too. And so he knows what the created world was supposed to be. And he knows that when Lazarus dies, this is not it. This is not what I created the world to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, Jesus is saying, like, you're... This is not the way it's supposed to happen. It's not supposed to be death and pain and sorrow and grief. And it says in verse 33 that when Jesus finds out what's going on, he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, I'm not smart enough to do like Jimmy and like talk about Greek off the cuff, so I have quotes for you today. Um, But the Greek word for deeply moved, it's used twice here. It's in verse 33 and verse 38. But it's used twice here. And the Greek word means to feel something deeply and strongly. Jesus was moved with profound sorrow at the death of his friend and at the grief that his other friends are suffering. So do you see he's experiencing grief? He has profound sorrow at the loss of his friend. You see that? And continued, in addition, this sorrow was intermixed with anger at the evil of death, the final enemy, and also with a deep sense of awe at the power of God that was about to flow through him to the triumph over death. Right? Another way that you can translate this, you might see it in your Bible, it says indignation. Like he is angry. And you see here in this quote, he's angry at evil. He's angry at death. He's angry at the way that it's not supposed to be. But he also has that awe, right? I mean, Martha wanted him to come and to save Lazarus, her brother. And then in verse 19, you see that they're all together. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. They're coming to comfort them. They're coming to to grieve together. And Jesus, you see, in verse 35 right? Everyone knows this one because it's the shortest verse in the whole Bible, right? Okay. Jesus wept. Now, he didn't cry, okay? Like, I might get misty-eyed. I can get choked up talking. Big surprise. Y'all have seen that before. You can cry where there's tears coming down your face, but then you can weep, like wail, bawling. That's what that means, 
when it says Jesus wept, I think a lot of times we're like, oh, Jesus got sad, and there might have been a tear, you know? No. Jesus wailed. Jesus was sorry and felt sorrow over the way that his friend had died. He experienced grief. Even Jesus experienced grief. Okay? That's what I want you to see. Even Jesus experienced grief. And he wept. And here's another quote for you. Nope. Um, Jesus' example, it shows this heartfelt mourning in the face of death and how it does not indicate a lack of faith, but honest sorrow at suffering and death. So he's saying, look, grief is not a lack of faith, okay? I think oftentimes we think grief is a bad emotion. It's messy. You don't get over it very fast. It's just, ugh, it's bad. And Jesus is going, no, no, no. We grieve over the way that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And even Jesus grieved. Right? Even Jesus grieved. And as Jesus is, is, is bawling, he's wailing, he's feeling the hurt of Lazarus dying, but then he sees everyone else grieving too, I always wonder, like, why did, why did Jesus cry? Like, he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like, why is, he, why is he upset? Well, he's showing you that he's angry at evil, but he's also grieving. And he's also feeling the awe of, here comes God's power. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus has hope. Jesus has hope in God. Do you see that? And so what I want you to see is how grief is not a lack of faith. Grief is not a bad emotion. Grief is actually something that we need to go through. Even Jesus grieved, okay? So we grieve over, you know, not getting put on the squad, or we grieve on not getting the raise, or, you know, there's a billion different things. Anytime you feel overwhelming sorrow for loss, you're feeling grief. And so I want us to see verse 25 and 26. Now, Becky did not read these, okay? So I'm going to show them to you because I want you to kind of understand Jesus' emotions here and what he says and how it brings us hope, okay? So this is verses 25 through 27. They say this, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So you see, this is what happened next. This is what happened um, after he finds out that Lazarus is dead, but before he gets down to visiting Mary and Martha in person and weeping, okay? So as he says this to them, this shows us what we can have uh, our hope in. And what's interesting to me is that he says, she says, can you resurrect him? And he says, I am the resurrection. 
right? Like, that's way more powerful than if I said, I'm going to resurrect him. He says, I'm the embodiment of resurrection. I'm the representative of resurrection and the resurrection power. That's who I am. And if you want life, it's through me. And so he's coming and saying these things, and he says, I love how he says to Mary or to Martha, do you believe this? And she's like, yes, I believe in you. Right? She didn't say, yeah, I believe this, what you just said, like his theology. She's saying, I believe in you, yes. I believe you're the Savior, the Son of God. And what, what's interesting to me is how it's like she, she doesn't answer the question directly. And it just shows you, like, this is not, like, you being made right with Jesus is not about you having your theology all proper and neat. You know, I mean, we're the, we're the PCA, we're Presbyterian. I don't know if you remember Jimmy's diagrams of us. We talked about how we have big heads and smaller hearts and smaller hands and feet, right? Like, we love our theology. And what I want you to see is that's not what makes you right with God. That's not what makes you right with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not interested in making you this, like, complete theological database that has no fruitfulness in it. It wants you to, to understand that, you're, that Jesus is way more than that. That's not how you're made acceptable. You're saved by faith through grace. Well, what does that mean here? We see in verse 25... In verse 25, he says, Whoever believes in Jesus will, even when he physically dies, in the future he's going to physically relive and take part in Jesus' accomplished resurrection. Okay? So that's kind of like one side of it where he talks about resurrection. And then he says in life, verse 26, it's like whoever has eternal life are the people who believe in me. And they're going to never spiritually die. They're free from eternal punishment and from spiritual death. So it's like Jesus is going, verse 25, I'm talking about the physical side, and verse 26, I'm talking about the spiritual side. Now, um, I didn't make this incredible table. Uh, I stole it from Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a commentary writer. He's really good. But I wanted to put them next to each other just so you can like, get a sense of, of what they're communicating. Like Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection. I'm the victory over death. I get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. Not death. Resurrection. And if you are a believer, you will be resurrected too. Your body will come back to life and it will have resurrection life in it. And then in verse 26, it's more of the idea of I'm the life, I'm victory over death of the soul. So your souls will never die. Right? They're not going to hang around above you for three days and then just take off. It's no, my soul is in Jesus. And 
you see that there's resurrection from the dead and eternal life. It's so closely tied to Jesus. Like I said, he embodies it. It's who he is. It's not just the stuff that he does. It's who he is. Our next quote is for verse 25 again, when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again, this is a Greek word, in. When you translate it, it is talking about the sense of like putting something into something. So giving you the sense that genuine faith in Christ is a sense that brings people into Christ so that they rest in and become united with the body of Christ. Right? They're united to Christ. Our hope, it goes into Christ. Our hope goes into the resurrection. Our hope goes into life, right? Like as a Christian, you go into those things when you have faith in Jesus because Jesus is those things. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And we are connected to him through our faith. We go into him and you're not letting go. He's not letting you go. Okay? So, our hope is in Jesus, but as we move on, this was, uh, what's it, uh, verse, let's see, what is this, 36. It says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? Like, see how Jesus loved Lazarus? But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Right? Like, they're saying, like, we saw him do that miracle. Why didn't he do this one? And what Jesus does is he shows them another miracle. What does he do? He brings them back to life. He goes down in verse 43, and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And this man, who's been dead for three days, wrapped in linen, comes walking out. I mean, think about that for a minute. If someone just said that, and then the person gets out of the coffin and stands up in the church, you're like, oh my gosh. Right? I mean, Jesus is, is doing this incredible miracle, and it's the last miracle that he does before his own resurrection. But he does this miracle to show them how he has power over all enemies, how he has power over evil and over death. And it's anticipating his own resurrection. Okay, so he's doing this because he's anticipating his own resurrection. Now, I mean, if you do, you need to come tell me. But I don't think any of us here have the power to bring people back from the dead. Right? So what does this mean for us? What do we do? How do we help people grieve? We can't bring people back to life. So how do we help people grieve? Or how do we grieve ourselves? Right? How do we grieve ourselves? Well, if Jesus was the last sign, then we need to look at him and say, look, I, I can't do what you do, but you can have the spiritual gift of presence. Presence. Not like gifts. Presence. Your presence with hurting people is a spiritual gift that everyone in this room has to some degree. 
sitting with people who are hurting. And let me, like, I want to take the pressure off. Like, you're sitting with them. You're not solving their grief. You're going to try to do that, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't happen. Many times that makes, makes the person feel worse because of the platitudes that you offer. Instead, we think about how we have the opportunity to sit with somebody and the pressure is off of trying to solve it. We just tend to them. And it might be that you just sit there and you let them cry and you put your arm around them. And it might be that y'all hysterically laugh together. And it might be that you tell old stories about the person that they lost. You do not have to be a theological expert to help someone in grief. Okay? Let's rehumanize grief and say, be a human to the person who's hurting. Sit with them. Comfort them. Help them carry what it is that they're having to carry now. There's a quote from... Um, a book that I highly recommend, Creating a Healthier Church. And it says, just by simply being with people in their sorrow and pain or other upsetting feelings, we are demonstrating a deeper connection with them. See how you're not solving? You're tending and connecting. And they will probably feel more cared for. I love that, of feeling more cared for. He knows that sitting with people in their pain is hard. I know that. You know that. It is hard. Let's, let's be honest. It is hard. But you don't have to solve it. Again, your presence is tending to their grief. Okay? Your presence is tending to their grief, and you're not trying to solve it, and you're not trying to fix it. And I'll just fin finish with this. Hope is not our strategy as Christians. Hope all by itself. Our hope is in something. Our hope is in Jesus. He's our strategy. Right? Our hope is in Jesus. He's in, we're putting our hope into the one who is the resurrection, who is the life. We're putting our hope when we feel hopeless in the Messiah of the Christian story. We're putting our hope in the king of empathy. We're putting our hope in the one who's going to one day, someday come back and make all things right and make it all whole again. And all sorrow will be gone and all grief will be gone and all tears will be gone. We put our hope in him. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, when we tend to our grief, we have to put our hope in Him. He's our anchor. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's easy for us to forget how good you are. It's easy for us to forget how we have to fix things and we have to solve things. Lord, even when everything goes dark, you're still our anchor. You're still the one who is, who is constant, and our hope is in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And we pray now that as we come to the table that you will bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.